This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. I hope uh, you had a great Labor Day. Uh, It's always good to be with you. And I'm excited to have my colleague Lisa Roy on today. Professor Lisa Roy uh, has been a guest on our show uh, several times, and and the last time was uh, 2020. But she is an expert in contracts and constitutional law. Uh, Professor Roy, um, welcome. You are always, uh, always welcome on the show. And please tell us a little bit about your background, and especially in... uh, law and religion, which we're going to be talking about today. Sure, sure. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. It's so great to be back. Uh, I always appreciate having the chance to be on the show. Um, So, yes, I teach at the University of Mississippi School of Law. I have been um, at the law school since 2001, so uh, a good while now, and I teach contracts and, of course, as you mentioned, constitutional law. And law and religion, I sort of focus on the First Amendment and and especially in law and religion. And so that's uh, just an area of interest for me, one that I've had for many years. And uh, so I, I really enjoy kind of looking at thinking about these questions, taking students through these cases and, you know, and 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 and, uh, and getting them sort of grapple with uh, these questions. And so it's, it's something that I enjoy very much. So as you can imagine, this term. Uh, has kept me very busy reading and talking and thinking about these cases. Well, we're so glad you're here to talk about these cases. And, and well, tell us a little bit generally, what does the U.S. Constitution say about religion? So we get uh, our First Amendment, right, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so not a lot of not a lot of words there uh, in the in the First Amendment on religion. But from there we get our freedom of religion, one of the five freedoms in the First Amendment, and we get an establishment clause and a free exercise clause. So under the establishment clause, uh, the government, you know, it says Congress, right, shall make no law. But of course, that's that's understood to include the states, right? That includes the executive and so forth. Uh, and so the government cannot establish a religion. And so that's where we get the idea of sort of separation of church and state. And then uh, under the free exercise clause, uh, individuals, groups, institutions have the right to freely exercise their religion. That's where we get the idea of sort of religious liberty, right? And really both clauses, uh, I think on, on a best reading of, of, of uh, the, the uh, First Amendment, both clauses work together, right, to, to establish religious liberty or to protect, right, religious liberty. But those are the two provisions that you often hear kind of lawyers and commentators talking about. And when the court, the Supreme Court decides these cases under the First Amendment, they've got to figure out, well, does this particular state program violate the Establishment Clause? Uh, or, you know, does it violate the free exercise clause or is it maybe permitted uh, by one or both of those? It's so interesting. Does anywhere in the Constitution, do they define what religion is? No, nowhere in the Constitution is religion defined. You know, we've got the, the provisions that I mentioned to you, the, the uh, religion clauses. We've got a no religious test clause. Right. And so the government can't make that a condition right, of 
of uh, kind of government employment, but in, in no way, you know, it, or, or public office, right? Um, so in, in, in no place does the Constitution define religion, and the Supreme Court really hasn't, defined religion for the purpose of kind of interpreting the Constitution. We get some cases here and there. Uh, it, you know, the most famous, I think, ones had to do with the draft uh, during the Vietnam era. And so there are a couple of draft exemption cases where the court interprets religion very broadly to include individuals who themselves claim that they were not traditionally religious people. I think the the uh, statutory exemption uh, referred to at least in one iteration of that exemption, it referred to belief in a supreme being and kind of having religious duties and so forth, a sense of duty. Uh, and, and neither of those objectors had those things, but in any event, or, or could say even that they were traditionally religious in the sense uh, that might clearly fall within the exemption, but, but the court nonetheless said, no, if you've got uh, kind of this, you know, uh, deeply held belief that is sort of parallel to the religious exemption, then that should be included in the statute. So many Many people, lawmakers, certainly courts, right, have looked at those decisions to understand religion very broadly. And it's interesting, the last time you were on the show was in 2020, was right as we were coming into the pandemic. And the issue was mask mandates and 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 something that honestly, I never went into mask mandates thinking, oh, there's a religious aspect to that. Um, so how, I mean, what was that? You know, you talked about it last time. So how was that? Uh, how did that become a free exercise question? So I think the bigger, you know, the bigger free exercise question, at least that I saw, I mean, we were kind of trying to anticipate, right? Because as you said, it was at the very beginning of the pandemic. We we're trying to anticipate how's this going to impact religious exercise? But it, it seems that the bigger issue was sort of the religious gatherings, right? And so people getting together and worshiping and so forth. And I guess you could have the mask issue with the, you know, the no singing or limitations on singing. And I don't know that we saw a lot of, of activity on that front. Certainly there are. Uh, you know, religious groups and individuals may have uh, sort of uh, issues around religious garb, religious apparel, uh, you know, uh, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, maybe face coverings and that sort of thing. But but the mask, as, as far as I know, that never kind of, uh, you know, culminated in sort of really big religious liberty issues. But certainly the the, the gatherings, the no religious gathering uh, kind of uh, uh uh, edicts that that went forth in response to the pandemic made their way up to the court in a series of cases. And what the court ultimately, um, you, you know, what they ultimately did was to look at this older case, the Smith case, that requires religious neutrality and to say, well, if you've got a rule that applies to the religious and the non-religious, then it has to be applied equally. If you give a secular exception or exemption, then you've got to give a religious exception. That's a neutrality rule. But there is also, in the court's cases, kind of this growing non-discrimination rule, which is very, very close, right? Very similar idea. Both of them really speak to equality. And so that's, I think, what's underneath uh, a lot of the decisions that we've got this term. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it really is interesting because we, we don't get to the decisions this term without some history, right? And so it's good to talk about uh, some, uh, some of the history. By the way, I think um, people that I, I worship with would be happy that I wear a mask if it muffled my voice <laughs> and hid half my face. But, um, but now you, you mentioned that term church and state. And, and I mean, it's not in the Constitution. It doesn't use those terms, separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. So... How what how again? How is that implied, really, by the Constitution? 
So it really comes from uh, a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptists, and he's kind of uh, trying to make them feel more comfortable about the language of the First Amendment. Uh, and he says it erects this wall between church and state. And so um, in, a, in an older case in the 1870s, the Supreme Court uh, considers this challenge brought by actually a personal secretary to Brigham Young. And so they're challenging um, anti-polygamy and bigamy laws in the territories. And uh, so the court has to consider whether there is a free exercise right on behalf of, at that time, Mormons, that that was part of their belief, their practices at that time, right, their belief practices, uh, whether they had a free exercise right to engage in Bigamy or polygamy, the court says no, and it turns to uh, Jefferson and Madison and this, and in particular, Jefferson's statements about separation of church and state says, we think really this is, so history is the key, and this really is the central meaning of, uh, at that time, the free exercise clause, but this turn to history to understand the the establishment clause in particular is something that that's really emblematic uh, of kind of the court's approach in this area, right? And so that's where we get uh, separation of church and state and the court in 1947 in a case called Everson versus Board of Education, uh, then comes back and says, yes, we had it right in Reynolds talking about the free exercise clause for no establishment. It is, we've got this principle of separation. But now what's interesting about Everson is that the court also at the same time, right? And that was a school funding program where they were paying for transportation to private schools, including parochial Catholic parochial schools. Uh, and the court upheld the funding program based on a complementary principle of neutrality and uh, anti-discrimination, if you will. So you've got separation of church and state. The court says, this is what we think no establishment, no establishment means. But then you also get this idea of neutrality where the court says, well, you can't uh, deprive the religious from public benefits because of their religion. And the court talks about persons of, of faith. It talks about uh, Baptists, uh, Muslims, persons of faith and no faith, right? Um, because of their religion or their, their or their lack of religion, they can't be deprived of public benefits. The example that the court gives is to say, uh, you know, of course, no one would sanction withholding fire protection or police protection from churches. And so you have these two complementary principles that exist in the court's doctrine. And I think one of them really held sway for a long time. And that's the, you know, sort of high wall, strict separation of church and state. And what we see in these recent cases is this neutrality or this non-discrimination principle where it comes to public programs or benefits that's really now coming to the fore. And so you talked about kind of the background to this term or these cases beginning in about 2017, the court has been kind of articulating this principle of non-discrimination. And so it really culminates, I think, this term in two very different settings, right? The, the uh, a case called Carson versus Macon having to do with school vouchers up in Maine. And then, of course, the case that everybody's heard about, Coach Kennedy out in Washington uh, and his, his post-game prayers. But both of those cases involve really kind of this non-discrimination principle, one having to do with public benefits and the other one having to do with speech and free exercise. Well, our law school graduates and our law school professors probably know all about these, uh, the history of uh, our religious freedoms, but I'm finding it tremendously fascinating, and I hope you are too. Send us your emails with your questions and comments to our address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. 
We are discussing religious freedoms. And as we talked a little bit earlier, Professor Lisa Shaw Roy was a guest on our show at the beginning of the pandemic. And we'll remind you of her podcast next. Not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live. So if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. This morning, we're talking about religious freedom with Professor Lisa Shaw Roy from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And so if our guest's name sounds familiar, it's because she was on our show July 28th of 2020 when we learned about the constitutionality of restrictions on religious gatherings and mandatory mask orders. I'll have a link to that podcast on the show information for this broadcast. Well, and it all kind of relates. I mean, I'm so happy we have Lisa here because uh, you mentioned Lisa in the first segment, you start to, you mentioned Carson, which was one of the cases that came out of the, the recent Supreme Court term. Uh, and um, so let's talk about uh, the Carson versus Macon case. What, you know, what, what actually happened there? So you've got in, uh, in that case, uh, the the main uh, Department of Education's decision to fund private education in districts where they they don't have a public school, and so maybe the you know the towns are you know these areas are so small that they just can't afford it, they can't sustain a public school, and so what they've done is to create a voucher program. You know, I thought about um, I thought about uh, Jessica Fletcher and uh, where she she's in Cabot Cove, Maine, right? Uh, maybe Cabot Cove, right? They've got to do this. Uh, but in any event, and so no public school, so they're going to fund private schools and parents can choose, right? In those, in, you know, in those districts, in those areas with no public school, parents can choose whether they want to send, uh, you know, their, ch- their child to private school. Of course, there, you know, there's compulsory education law, so they've got to do that or homeschool or maybe, you know, commute to a, where there's a, pub, a you know, place where there's a public school, a district where they've got a public school. They can choose to take this government money and fund it at a private school. Okay, so... Um, Around uh, around the early 80s, Maine becomes concerned. Hey, we think this might violate the establishment clause if this money goes to a religious school. If we allow parents to, uh, you know, take this money and then spend it at a religious school, and so they exclude religious schools or what they call sectarian schools, which they interpret as schools which inculcate sort of religion to students. And so um, the challenge to this this program is from the religious actually they're they're parents of students that attend religious schools and want to keep attending religious schools they want to get this benefit to use at the religious schools and so maine says no uh, you can't do that if they're in fact religious schools and so this becomes really a free exercise clause issue but certainly in the background right is the establishment clause where Maine says well we've got we're concerned about the separation of church and state we want to remain neutral and so we don't want to fund religious schools the challengers then argue well that's discrimination uh, if you're giving this money to private schools and sort of the or private secular schools and so the background the legal background is uh, then in about uh, you know 2002 or so the court in a case called Zellman, uh, said that uh, you know states and localities can, if they choose, 
uh, engage in or create these voucher programs that include religious schools as long as the, the, the funds are distributed based on the neutral and independent choice of the parents, the recipient, and it's not money going directly to the schools. And so they don't, I think they don't violate the establishment clause if they include religious schools as they did for many years. But the real issue in the case is, do they have any of what's called play in the joints? That is, can they decide that they've got their own anti, anti-establishment interests that might be greater than uh, the federal constitution's uh, you know, establishment clause? Can they maintain that? Or is this a prohibited type of, of uh, status or even use discrimination based on religion? And so that's the kind of the issue in the case. The court sides with the challengers who say they want to use this, these funds at religious schools. And the court says that this, in, this is, in essence, discrimination under the free exercise clause that is not justified by Maine's, uh, Maine's own interest in not funding religious education. And it's interesting because Maine, you know, that's been a longstanding uh, rule in Maine. I mean, it had been uh, going back two centuries to, to say, hey, we're, gonna, we're, we're not going to use these funds to uh, fund religious education or, or education with a religious school. Um, so what about states' rights here? I know a lot of people talk about, you know, the state making the decision and the state of Maine has said, we're going to, we're going to, this is how we're going to do it with our money for our citizens. So the Supreme Court over, overrode states, the, the state's decision here? So I, I think so. I think that's what you have um, in cases like this one. And so I think that the play in the joints idea would give states some flexibility. And so uh, if that were the rule, right? And so there's a, there's a case of, you know, a few years after Zelman Lockby Davy, where the court said that the state of Washington could exclude a, a particular individual, Joshua Davy, from this promise scholarship to use at college that he would otherwise be eligible for if he wanted to use it for a major in devotional theology, which Washington interpreted as preparing people uh, for the ministry or, or, or you know, giving them training in the ministry. And so the court, in a decision in Lockby Davy, uh, seven to two, uh, said that that was okay because the play in the joints. And so we, what we've seen, I think, in, in recent years is sort of a move away from uh, Lock v. Davy, that play in the joints, because that would be the sort of federalism that you're talking about where different states would do different things. I think to the extent that you've got a program like this one where uh, there is not a public alternative, a public education alternative, right? So it's just private education and it's a voucher program and the religious, uh, you know, the religious alternative is excluded. I think the court is saying that's discrimination under the free exercise clause. And so states don't get to choose to do that. It's so interesting. Now, where do you see this going in the future? What, what, what will be the next step in terms of funding? Because they, they said they must fund uh, religious activity as part of that educational aid program. So where do we go from here? Yeah. Um, and, and I'm... I'm not good. I guess there might be some people out there. They're sort of good at predicting, right? Where's the doctrine going to go? What's the what's the um, the old quote? Uh, it's uh, dangerous to make predictions, especially about the future, right? <laughs> um, so I'm I'm not great at predicting sort of where the court's going to go. I can tell you some questions, right, that are on the horizon uh, that are left open, right? And so the court seems uh, seems to have said in this case, in in, in Espinosa, another a similar kind of case from last term that uh, that there, the establishment clause would be implicated if the state was giving the money sort of directly to uh, directly to 
through the religious institutions, if it's not going through the hands of the beneficiaries, right? And so I think a, a, a purely sort of direct aid case going to religious institutions, you know, for, for sort of the teaching of religion, uh, the court says it's still going to be an, an establishment clause issue, right? Still going to uh, very likely violate the establishment clause. And so you might maybe see a little pressure on 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 that, right, by folks that maybe want to want to see this open up even more. Um, and then I think a, a real issue for the schools is uh, to what extent can, um, you know, can states maintain anti-discrimination, right, provisions. So schools may want to prefer co-religionists, they may have other tenants that are inconsistent with public accommodation laws. We see this coming up in other contexts, right, with private business owners. So does the free exercise clause have anything to say about say about that? Now, in, in the main case, I think it's it's not an issue because I think Maine's um, anti-discrimination law, this came up in oral argument, um, it has an exclusion, right, for religion. And so that particular tension doesn't exist. Uh, but you can certainly see arguments on both sides, right? Um, and and the one I think that has this hasn't been front and center, but the one that seems to be implied, I think, in the court's doctrine is that states can and localities can maintain right the, their anti-discrimination norms, and the school just decides whether or not they want to go along with that in order to participate in the program. So you might see a little pressure, you know, on on that issue that would sort of um, that would. Uh, that would sort of align with what we see in the, in the private sphere where you've got individual business owners that have free exercise, uh, you know, claims that they're asserting against those type of uh, those, those types of anti-discrimination norms. And we saw it in the Fulton case last term where you had uh, the um, religious uh, religious organizations and Catholic charities and so forth that wanted to uh, continue engaging in uh, placement of foster children. And so the court in that case applied, and this was, I, I think, the uh, this you didn't have uh, really vigorous dissents at all in that case. So this was kind of pretty much the, the court saying, you've got if you've got the uh, you know if you've got the secular exception, then you've got to make the religious exception. Uh, and so and so that's an area I think that uh, that that uh, opens up some interesting questions. So fascinating. It'll be interesting. I, I'm not good at predicting either. I always talk to my tax students and say, well, what I think is going to happen. And that's never what happens. So I, I totally understand that. Well, I did want to, uh, as the producer of the show, give an editorial clarification for our Gen Z and millennial listeners. Cabot Cove, Maine, was the home of Murder, She Wrote, a fantastic uh, murder mystery show for a certain crowd. <laughs> you can join the show by sending us your email questions. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We are talking with Professor Lisa Shaw Roy about religious freedom. Now, our learned scholars have mentioned quite a few cases during the show, and I'll tell you how you can read up on those citations next. And we do hope you'll subscribe to our podcast, or you can find MPB Think Radio recordings on our website, mpbonline.org slash radio.
This morning, we are talking about religious freedoms with our guest, Professor Lisa Shaw Roy. And we're hearing about a number of specific cases having to do with religious freedom. And I do try to put as much information on our website uh, links for notes to the show on this broadcast. So you can look for that. Professors, we did get an email, uh, a listener, he says, the religious clause has nothing to do with establishing anything. It is referring to something that already exists. There is no separation of church and state. What Jefferson meant was the state could not favor one belief over another. They have to be all treated equally. Sure. So I, I think what the what the listener is referring to is um, a kind of a reading or an understanding of the Establishment Clause uh, that says that the Establishment Clause really uh, was designed to sort of keep the government out of state establishments. And so that language, uh, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, has sometimes uh, been interpreted by various justices and commentators to mean, well, that really just means ha- that really just meant at the time sort of hands off state establishments that the government couldn't regulate. Uh, state establishments. And I think that argument has some historical support. Certainly, it hasn't been, I think, a view of the majority of the court. But you do see, for example, I think Justice Justice Thomas uh, certainly takes this view uh, when he talks about whether or not, or he's written about in opinions, uh, whether or not the Establishment Clause should, in fact, be applied to the states. Um, and then the, the last part, I think, of the comment has to do with denominational neutrality. And so it is a bedrock principle uh, of the religion clauses, and, and it's reflected in the court's doctrine that the government can't discriminate between religions, right? And so that's, I think, one of the arguments that comes up in Carson, right? Well, if you've got a religion that maybe doesn't look uh, so religious, I think the example that came up uh, was an, an oral, oral argument was was maybe uh, Unitarian Universalist, um, uh, you know, if they if their beliefs seem sort of aligned with the state, then maybe you're discriminating against other religions that have different beliefs or more particularistic beliefs that don't align with sort of these general principles that uh, that the Department of Education right, wants to uh, wants to promote in their public schools. And so I think that's that's kind of a baseline. I think where where people get into disputes under the Establishment Clause is whether that's um, that's not just a floor, but also a ceiling. Right. So is that everything that the Establishment Clause can be understood to me? Well, it's so interesting because we, we would almost have to be in the room with the founders of the Constitution, the people who drafted the Constitution to know exactly what it was they were trying to say. Um, and so we, here we are, you know, centuries later, trying to figure it out and apply it as, as law. So it's, it's hard to know. But. You know, it seems like we always have to deal with this balance between free exercise and establishment. And about a week after the Carson case you just talked about was issued, the court uh, issued the the opinion of Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Uh, Tell us about that decision. Sure. So that's a case uh, that came out of Washington State. You had uh, an assistant football coach. He was employed by the school district. Uh, he had a practice of praying after football games at the 50-yard line. So apparently immediately after the game, he would go, he would kneel, uh, say a silent prayer. I think um, there was evidence in the case that there had been, prior to his arrival 
at the school and, and certainly after, so prayers in the locker room and so forth that he engaged in with the students. There were times when students and members of the public sort of joined him on the field. And so this uh, comes to the attention of the school district uh, kind of uh, ironically through, I, I think, an opposing uh, an opposing coach or member of, of uh, you know, some member of the opposing sort of school uh, staff that says, hey, I think it's great. You've got a prank coach. And, and the district is like, wait a minute, what? We've got a, you know, we've got a prank coach. What's going on? They confront Kennedy. Right. And so they say we're concerned about the establishment clause. We don't want you doing this. And so uh, he thinks about it. And I think at one point he, he agrees he agrees not to do it. He ends the uh prayers in the in the locker room that had predated I think his arrival he uh, he says he's not going to you know invite students or have kind of religious uh, sort of devotionals or or religious religiously themed sort of talks pep talks with his students but he does decide to continue the postgame uh, prayers uh, on the 50 yard line or so immediately you know immediately after the game and so he is uh, again uh, kind of uh, told by the school district, okay, we've got a problem with this. If you continue to do this, then, uh, you know, we're, we're going to, uh, we're going to fire you. And so uh, he does, I think uh, he gets this letter that says we're concerned about, uh, you know, the, the uh, appearance that this creates for, uh, you know, for the public that we're endorsing this in some way he does for, I think three or four games after that letter continue to pray. I don't think he has any of his students with him, but he does, I think at one of the games uh, he is joined maybe by some students from an opposing team, maybe a, a few folks uh, from the crowd as well. So he's fired. And so the issue is whether he is fired for his uh, religious exercise or his religious beliefs or whether maybe the school is justified because they want to uh, they, they want to prevent a violation of the establishment clause or, you know, they've got this concern, as you know, we mentioned earlier, separation of church and state. And so that's that's the issue. And so the court rules for the coach. Right. And so the court says that this is his private activity. And as long as this is his private activity, that it's not attributable to the school. And so uh, this is not speech that the school can control. It's not their own speech. It's his speech. So that means he's got a free speech and importantly, a free exercise of religion. Right. In the same way that an employee might have, let's say, to you know, say a prayer over their meal or engage in some other uh, kind of uh, private religious practice. Uh, it's important in the case that the school district uh, says in their letter, you know, we know that you haven't coerced anybody to join you, but we still think this is a problem. He says that he hasn't done that. And the court accepts that there's no coercion uh, of students. That would be a different case. That would be a constitutional violation of the students, right, of their free exercise. If they're coerced or in any way kind of even uh, what the courts talked about indirectly pressured, right, to join him or to or to engage in any sort of religious activity, maybe to you know to curry his favor or that sort of thing. So that would be a different case, but that's not present. And so the court says that it he has the free exercise right to at least he had when he was employed to engage in these prayers, even though he's a public employee and even though this is happening right after the right after the game. Well, I mean, I, I have to ask this question because sometimes I think. The constitutional questions coming in, and, I, and I, my first question is always, why is this an employment issue? I mean, if my employer tells me this is behavior, you want to keep your job, you need to stop doing this, right? 
So why why is that? Why is it that uh, this was not just an employment issue that he did not comply with his employment? So it you know it could be I think um, or, or uh, let me say it this way could have been right certainly framed that way. I think the the school district runs into trouble because they single out the religious behavior, right? And so uh, what they what they say is, and what they said in their letter, right, and in their communications with Coach Kennedy is that, well, this creates a spectacle. We're concerned about this because it's religious. And so that then distinguishes his conduct from, let's say, somebody making a TikTok video or uh, you know, you know, running into the stands or engaging in some other behavior. They they stress the religious aspect of the of the behavior and since it's a public school that then implicates the first amendment now there you know there's also um, there are also religious protections that are available right under employment laws as well Uh, but i think that's the big um, sort of distinguishing factor and so when they talk about the fact that they're worried about violating the establishment clause that immediately raises the specter of the first amendment they zero in on the fact that this is religious uh, whereas I think if they had solely focused on conduct, well, we don't want you doing anything right after the game, uh, then that would have, I think, put it uh, really um, more kind of closely in, in the sort of in the in the box or in the bucket of uh, this is an employment matter where we don't really have a First Amendment issue, or at least not not one that's apparent. So it goes back to neutrality. Yeah, that would be yeah, really, yeah, yeah. and so it, I think it's. You know, constructive because where does this go from here? You know, when we talk about prayer um, and public places, where, where does that go? So I, I, I don't know that this one has, um, I, I don't know that in this case, there's a lot of momentum, right, to change uh, big elements of the doctrine. I think with respect to public prayer, you had two basic rules uh, that the court has sort of settled on under the establishment clause. You had the school prayer cases kind of coming out of, uh, you know, in, in uh, 62 and 63, uh, where uh, the court rules that you cannot have a school comp- a school comp- composed or government composed kind of prayer that students are required to recite. Uh, same thing with prayer and bi- Bible reading the next term uh, after that Engel case in the Shemp case. And that's pretty much been the law of the court then in the 90s, Uh, said, well, this is also true for graduations. If you bring in kind of a religious figure and you make everybody stand, uh, the court then in 2000 said, well, for football games, that's also true if you've got this policy prayer at football games. Uh, And so I don't know that any of that really changes in this case. I think the court is maybe looking at this issue of school prayer kind of from another direction. So now what about uh, you know, what about government employees that aren't composing prayers or requiring students to recite prayers or otherwise, uh, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, doing something that might implicate the students free exercise or uh, free exercise rights or the school's concerns about uh, violating the establishment clause. So I, I think that's what, what what's happening in Kennedy. I think, uh, you know, for folks, there was a real concern. Does this uh you know, does this over overturn those cases, right? The school prayer cases. And I think the court cites some of those cases that I mentioned as good law uh, and also emphasizes that unlike in uh, the graduation case, for example, Levy Wiseman, there's no coercion. And so I don't think this case uh, changes uh, any, that any of those school prayer cases. I think it just now looks at the problem maybe from a different angle, focuses on here, this employee minus uh, sort of minus the students, 
Um, and then with respect to legislative prayer, I think that area has kind of been established for a number of years. And so I think you still have this distinction between school prayer, where we're really worried about coercion if it's present, and then legislative prayer that has kind of this historical pedigree uh, where governments have a freer hand, right, to, to engage in that. I love learning the the, the history, the present, and uh, not the predictions, but the, the questions for the future. Our guest is Professor Lisa Shaw-Royal. We can take your questions and comments on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is such a fascinating topic, and if you'd like to hear more about religious freedoms, I will tell you how you can next. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all of our local shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. So if you are enjoying this discussion of religious freedom, you might enjoy our podcast from April 2nd of 2019. It was on the same topic of religious freedom. And on December 18th of 2017, we talked about religious displays. There'll be links to those podcasts on the show information for this podcast. We're going to go to the phones. We have a call from Memphis. It's Daryl on the line. Daryl, we're glad you've called in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comments or question? Well, good morning, and thank you all for taking my call. Uh, Listening to the previous discussion on um, prayer and religious with regard to the case that was decided by the Supreme Court, my question is, does the Constitution specifically define religion or religious? Professor Gershon, we, we tapped about that a little bit. Professor uh, Shaw Roy? It does not. We do not have a definition of religion uh, in, in, the, in the Constitution, in the text of the First Amendment. We've got uh, a mention of, of religion. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So we have that language. Uh, the idea that religion must include some exercise, you know, whatever's meant by that. And then we have a no religious test clause, which says basically you can't, you know, uh, you can't use religion as, a, a, you know, as a as a disqualifier, say, or a qualifier for public office. But otherwise, the text of the First Amendment uh, and the Constitution itself does not define religion. And so the court... Uh, has had to, in applying some statutes, had to uh, figure out what that definition should mean for the purpose of applying those statutes. And so, we, you know, we mentioned a couple of uh, a couple of cases from the Vietnam era where you had some draft exemption uh, or, or draft objectors that wanted to get a religious exemption that was available uh, for claimants who had a sense of kind of religious duty or. Uh, a sense of devotion to a supreme being, and the court actually, in a couple of cases, in, in Seeger and Welsh, uh, interpreted religion very broadly uh, to to apply to these individuals who arguably would not have qualified for uh, for the exemption uh, if it really depended on them being religious in the traditional sense. And so that's that's kind of an open question, but it's one that the court has at least taken a look at in the context of uh, of the draft. Thank you, Daryl. Yeah, uh, thank you all. 
Thank you, Daryl. You know, one thing I'll add is, you know, the, the one area I've seen, because I'm a tax person, is in applying uh, for tax-exempt status, uh, an organization has to show that they're religious. And there are cases uh, involving the Church of Scientology, for example, where the IRS challenged whether they were actually a religion. And that kind of bothered me because I, I, I always shouldn't have an organization that it's easy to make subjective judgments about them, but that's, that's, that's not the point. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and, you know, especially in the context of like a tax exemption, I mean, that's something that a lot of people would like to get. Right. And so, uh, and so, yeah, the IRS uh, maybe has to be a little more scrupulous about uh, who qualifies, but it does raise these questions, right? Are they not making subjective judgments when, uh, when they're trying to figure out who qualifies for the exemption. Yeah, and I think that hopefully that doesn't happen with the Supreme Court where they're making a subjective judgment about one person whether just clear versus another. I, I mean, one of the things that happened this year, pretty big thing was overturning a Roe versus Wade. And that overturning a Roe versus Wade has religious implications. And so uh, a rabbi in Florida is suing uh, the anti-abortion laws in Florida saying, um, that is going to be something that will affect Jewish religious liberties because, um, you know, in, in Judaism, a lot of Jews firmly believe that a woman's right to has a right to abortion in certain circumstances. So, where do you see that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think with the free exercise clause becoming uh, kind of having more muscle, more teeth, if you will. Um, it's very likely that we'll see sort of free exercise clause challenges to uh, sort of seemingly secular laws. And, 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 uh, and that's one that at least I've, I've heard about. And of course, seeing the article that you're referring to with respect to this rabbi out of Florida, I think with what the court has said about religion, the test really is sincerity. And so if they can establish, right, if an individual or a group can establish, hey, we have this sincerely held, that means good faith, we're not lying about it, we're not making it up, sincerely held religious belief, uh, then that's potentially going to qualify, right, for uh, for protection. And then we're under an equality rule or non-discrimination rule of a reading, right, this particular group. Are there secular exceptions that are being made to this law? If so, then the court's got to consider uh, the potential for the religious exception and and what the court hasn't done right is to uh, at least what it's tried not to do is sort of parse the various claims as 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 between and among say members of religious groups and so you might uh, you know have maybe a more orthodox group that says well that's not our view the court's not going to going to uh, uh, try to police right those differences that this is very idiosyncratic right if this particular believer or if this particular congregation if this particular group uh, has this sincerely held belief, then that is, uh, then that's enough to qualify potentially for protection under the free exercise clause. And then I think the analysis shifts to how is the religious claim being treated vis-a-vis the secular, right? Potentially secular claim. It's interesting because when I was studying for the bar, you know, one of the things my constitutional law uh, teacher who was teaching bar prep said, two things that are pretty easy to remember. Nixon was you know, so executive privilege, you know, usually goes up, but the Amish win. Because at that time, there were a lot of cases where there were exceptions for, you know, like mandatory uh, public yeah. education and like that for mm-hmm. the Amish. So 
you know, it's going to be interesting to see if that law applies when we get into things like abortion, et cetera. Yeah, that, and that's a case that I thought about, haven't mentioned yet, so I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, the Wisconsin v. Yoder, right? And so they get this, this exemption from the, uh, the uh, compelled compulsory education laws where they say, well, we keep our children home past the eighth grade. We can sort of do what Wisconsin uh, says they want to do, which is develop them into good citizens and so forth. We've got our own ways of training. And the court says very interestingly, right, that this is, this is an exemption that maybe this is a claim, a showing that maybe very few other groups could make, but the Amish here have made it because they have this long history. And so that's maybe sort of a, 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 a kind of a counter, uh, counter uh, sort of uh, argument maybe. Uh, that might be made sort of narrow uh, the, the definition of religion. We haven't been saying that about uh, any other groups or in any other cases beyond that case involving the Amish, but it's an interesting one. And one we'll have to save for a future broadcast. Thank you very much, Professor Lisa Shawroy. We're so glad that you could be with us today. Thank you for Professor Richard Gershon, who... Uh, both are from the University of Mississippi School of Law today. Uh, Jay White has been our board engineer today. We thank our intern, uh, Charles Arnold, for being our phone screener. We hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.